Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. This is your host, Rachel Jamison, and today I'm joined by Dakota Cohen, and Dakota is a permaculturist. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and what exactly it is you're doing and what you're linked to with like your website and stuff before we get into it. Yeah, thanks so much, Rachel. So yeah, I, I was born and raised on a 250-acre mixed organic farm in, in central Alberta, Canada. And basically, I knew I wanted to be a farmer my whole life. Um, I spent a few years in the the uh, getting my carpentry ticket, um, just because, you know, you can't make any money farming. That's that's what I was taught growing up. So right. I, I, I figured I'd have to go off farm to, to make my money. But uh, around, I think it was probably around 2012 is when I just really started to, to click things together in terms of, you know, the problems that I was seeing in the world and, you know, my, my passion for agriculture. And I started to go beyond the kind of organic world into things like permaculture, holistic management, regenerative agriculture was, was just kind of starting then as well. And yeah, basically since that time, it's just been a, a black hole of, of, you know, running experiments on our farm and that turned into, uh, you know, doing tours and then people asking me if I would do consulting and workshops. And and now that's actually a big part of what I do is is helping uh, basically other homesteaders and farmers anywhere in the world to design and develop land for their own freedom, purpose and abundance. Okay, very cool. So when you, so you said you went and I've never heard of it referred to that, but you are from Canada, a ticket, yeah. which means is that similar to getting your... um journeyman's yes yeah it's a yeah red red seal journeyman ticket okay yeah. okay and then so your plans were probably not to be on the farm or did you enjoy being on the farm a lot of kids get burned out yeah i, I mean the so i was i'm the youngest of six and the other the other five all got burned, burned out for sure um and i think it's because i was the youngest that that i didn't get, get burned out because a lot of the hard heavy lifting was done before i came along okay um but uh yeah, I, I always knew that I I was going to be a farmer. Like from some of my awesome. earliest memories were, you know, helping dad with chores, and but I I also knew that I wasn't going to farm the way that we farmed. Okay. Like, like that there was from an early age, the, I can remember having thoughts of just like this sucks. Like there's a there's got to be a better way. Um, you know, what, have whatever we were doing, whether we were you know working with pigs or cows or in the garden or you know, in our orchards, it, there was always just thought of like, how could this be better, more efficient, less work? Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was always with me. And then when I found permaculture, I literally was like, I think the first five minutes of research on it, I was like, this is going to be the rest of my life. So how did you find it? What, what? I literally searched. I, yeah. One day I just searched. Um, I knew I wanted to come back to the farm, but I knew I didn't want to farm the way 
that uh, that my parents did. And, and this is nothing against them. Like they they were oh, doing yeah. right. my um so my my dad grew up on an industrial farm, like like uh, before we got on, you were talking about how, you know, um, I think it was your your husband's folks were kind of from the eighties. Um, like that was the the like really peak industrial egg. And and for folks who grew up before that, where, where there was just so much drudgery in in farm work, yeah. like fertilizer and and glyphosate and herbicide, they were a, a godsend for these people, yeah. and and, and ma- magic, basically. And mm-hmm. so for them, they they um they got hooked on it, um r- really really quickly because it it cut their workload in half, and it there were a lot of well, you know, benefits or short-term benefits that it, right. it's, it seemed like, you know, they were, they were, it was a good product. Um, but of course it was too good to be true. And so anyways, that, that's how my dad grew up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they were farming a couple thousand acres, um, yeah, hogs and barns, feedlots for cattle. Um, and they had chickens and they milked cows, but everything was, was a monoculture. So the pigs were here, the cows were here, the chickens were here, the grain was over here, the hay was over here. It was everything was separate, and we can get into this later of, of you know yeah. with, with permaculture. But th- that's um, the reason there's they were so much work is because they were they were separate. In in, e- in ecosystems, the um, everything is interconnected, and the 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 waste products of one element become the resources of another, and so you know the the basically the the essence of permaculture is is how to how to mimic ecosystems so that you can uh, achieve that same fun that that same kind of efficiency. Um, so, anyways, yeah, come back to to my story. You know, growing up on a, on a organic farm, my my dad made the transition from industrial agriculture to organic agriculture in in 1988, okay. which was before the internet. Um, yes. right. So yes. they, they, this was, this was very, very early and, uh, there were basically no resources and, and they struggled for years. There's just, there was no help at that time, especially in our, in our area. Um, there was only like one or two other farmers that were doing it and they didn't have, they had, they were basically just grain farmers. They didn't have the, the mixed aspect that we did. Oh, just grain. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you know, we had, you know, pigs and chickens and cows and, and, uh, dairy animals and we did grain. And yeah, so I, mean, I totally get it. I'm probably just a little bit younger than your parents, but we also, you know, we grew up without the internet and it definitely is. Mm-hmm. A, it's a different it's a, yeah. research. It's just the internet has broadened our horizons so much, the good and the bad. And it's, a, yeah. it's 20, you know, hindsight's 2020. My mm-hmm. husband was raised with parents that grew up at the end of the depression, the great depression. Yeah. And so for them, the chemicals were amazing. Yes. Yeah. Like you said, it saved so much time. Yeah. And you know, they, they didn't know what we know now. And so, no. you know, no. I'm not blaming them. It's just how it was. And hindsight's 2020. And now we know that there's ways to do what you're doing. So when you decided that you were going to start moving towards permaculture since your parents went from industrial ag to organic ag, I'm going to assume that they were kind of excited about this, but still maybe hesitant. Yeah. They, I mean, they were, they've been super supportive um, with, with everything that we've done and the, they've come like they're, they're right on board right now, but yeah, there, there was some feet dragging at the beginning. uh, Most because the stuff was just so, um, 
well, part of it was because some of the ideas were were kind of far out there, and and also part of it was because a lot of the the resources about permaculture are kind of backyard gardens, like it's very very, very small scale. Yeah. So it took me a while to kind of navigate the resources, like the like the first PDC or the permaculture design course that I took. Um, the it didn't really have anything to do with agriculture. It was it was all kind of small scale gardening, which is nothing right. wrong with that. Right. But when I, when you get back to the original stuff that Bill Mollison did, like permaculture originally meant permanent agriculture. It, it was absolutely like a, a um, you know a large scale agricultural system for land design, and then later on it, it was broadened into permanent culture. So it was all aspects of of you know, human society ranging from financial systems to educational systems to, you know, buildings and, and gardens and, and crops and all this stuff. Um, so I think a, lo a lot of the, the resist resistance that they had is the crazy ideas I was trying to, to, you know, try out on our farm. They just weren't going to work and they saw it <laughs> ahead of me. And I was, you know, frustrated and just, you know, it's, it's going to work. We got to try. And, um, but yeah, now, now that we've kind of dialed that in, you know, the, our, our workload has never been less. We've never been more profitable every year. Our land That's gets great. healthier. It's, I mean, it's, it seems like it's, it's too good to be true, but it, um, when you start to partner with the ecosystem processes, like magic starts to happen and it's, and it, it, it is the, the kind of real magic that I think the, the industrial uh, kind of green revolution was was looking for, except as opposed to coming from a laboratory, it's coming from, you know, yeah. nature. Now, when you look at, I've seen the aerial photos and video of your place, and people will be able to go to the links that we're going to provide to look at that. Did it look totally different? Because now you have this all designed, and that must have taken just a ton of work for you to totally. Oh yeah. Change all. Yeah, like, again, you can go back in. Uh, if if you have like Google Earth uh, Pro or or any kind of GIS systems, and you you can go back and see the old photos, satellite photos of our farm, uh, like in 2012 when I when I first took my my permaculture design course and came back, like our farm was you indistinguishable from any other farm. You okay. know, we were doing full full tillage. We had all the wetlands were drained. Um, we had our our cows were basically in in feedlots for for six to eight months out of the year, even though they were organic. Like the only thing that we weren't doing is we weren't using fertilizer and chemicals, but everything else was just as industrial as, as everybody else. And every year our yields got less. We had more weed problems, like things were going downhill. So just because you don't use chemicals and fertilizer doesn't mean you're a good farmer. And that was a, that was a big insight for us is that it's, it's a lot more than just not doing. Yeah. Um, and I think using the chemicals. I think a lot of people don't understand that organic farming, most industrial scale organic farming is still industrial and it still looks yes. almost exactly the same. Yeah. When you, yep, when you exactly. drive by it, you probably really can't tell the difference. No. And no. permaculture is just so, it's vastly different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you started doing this and um, you started changing the property mm -hmm. and what, I guess just get into that and how, um, like, because you're doing some really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the um, one of the the things we started out with was uh, redesigning our farm's kind of relationship to water. 
Um, <clears throat> so in our in our area, um, we usually get only about 12 inches of rain a year, or oh, wow. or or 300 millimeters. If if you got some some folks on the on the met- metric system, yeah. uh, and uh, and in the in the winter time, we we would only get you know the equivalent of say you know, two or three inches of rain. Um, like so we might get, get a lot of snow. We, we don't get a lot of snow. Maybe, it, maybe a foot like this year. Um, like we've been, a, we've been in a bad drought for a couple of years. And this year we, we might have gotten the equivalent of like less than an inch of rain in our snow, like maybe six inches of snow. And it's, it's light, fluffy snow. It's not like the wet snows that you guys get down, you know, where you're at, where it's, it's like, yeah, I'm in Michigan. Half, so we get yeah, lots half of one. snow and yeah. lots of rain. Yeah. Yeah. So except like, the la- except for the last two years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we're, we're lucky. And where I live, if you go, you know, even 30 minutes, kind of any, any direction, you'll either get drier or wetter. So I'm kind of right okay. in the middle, but, but just yeah, half hour away from where I live, the tree, there's not enough moisture for trees to grow naturally. Like it's, yeah, it's the I've noticed like that short, the short grass prairies. Yeah. Like where you're at, you've obviously tried to bring trees back, but I've noticed around you, there's not a lot. Of yeah. And, and that's largely just because of the industrial agriculture, you know, clearing trees to to grow annual crops. Um, but like I said, just a, f- a few miles down the road, you, you can't, you can't even grow trees if you wanted to naturally, or they don't grow wild because there's just not enough moisture. Okay. So, um, and then tag that on top of it with the fact that, you know, our water tables have been dropping for a hundred years. So my, like my, my, you know, great, great grandparents settled here, uh, back in, in 1914, they literally built a, you know, their log cabin to the side of a hill and, you know, raised a few kids there. Um, but they had hand dug wells that they were getting fresh water out of the ground. Now, like our springs are gone. There's no creeks flowing around in our area. Um, and our wells are hundreds of feet deep. So like this, this ecological degeneration has been happening for a long time. So yeah. fast forward to, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we had already burned through two wells by the time I was born. And, uh, you know, when, when the cows came in to drink water, we didn't, we had to like time when we we're going to shower and, um, and wash clothes because there wasn't enough water from our well. We would get about a half a gallon a minute production out of our well. Uh, so then we, we tried to dig another well and that wasn't great either. And it's kind of salty water. So anyways, when I came back to the farm and I was like, I want to plant orchards and, you know, do all this crazy stuff. It was like, well, where are we going to get the water from? And we knew we couldn't, we couldn't go down. So we had to look up and, and then it's funny because uh, like, I just had this, this memory at the time of, of a kid, my favorite time of the year was the spring runoff where there's that, you know, two, two, three weeks of, you know, basically there's just rivers flowing everywhere and then they're gone. And, and it hit me. That's like, I wonder how much water that is. And I started doing the math on it and literally we're like, we're in this desert and everyone complains about water all the time. And yet for two weeks of the year, there's like millions of gallons of water that are flowing through most people's properties and they don't, they didn't even know it. And we didn't even know it. So with that, we started to like, okay, how do we, how do we basically slow spread and infiltrate that resource right. to help, you know, solve this problem. And that led us to uh, experiment with a lot of different things, um, key, uh, key line subsoiling, swales, dugouts, dams, uh, flood irrigation, um, you know, doing um, kind of beaver dam analogs, which is you know, kind of like mimic what, what beavers would have done in the landscape. Because just a hundred years ago, there were beavers on our farm. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, so that, that was really the the first piece that that were that we had the most success was was mimicking that na- that natural pattern of of slowing, spreading, and infiltrating water into the ground. And it's just been phenomenal. Like we've, I literally, when I was a kid, there was not standing water on our farm anywhere on our 250 acres. That's um, crazy because I've seen it now. In yeah. And, and now, yeah. yeah, now every year. So we, <clears throat> our, our, our yearly water budget is about 250,000 gallons or a million liters of water. And, and the, uh, quite a few years in a row now, we've harvested 10 million gallons of water just in the, that two weeks. So that's that's 40 years worth of the water that we use every year in terms of our domestic, uh, like household uses, livestock, you know, any any irrigation type stuff. So we're basically at like a 40 to one ratio of we take one year out, we put 40 years back. And we've done that a few years in a row now. The the last the last couple of years have been a bad drought and like no one's had any water. But even on those years, we've still been getting, you know, a million gallons a year. So where are you um, storing that? In ponds or do you have yeah, other yeah, yeah, ponds, yeah, ponds, dams, wetlands, um, our okay. swales. So like actually like the the organic matter in the soil is one of the largest water storing and it's one of the most cost effective water storage uh systems you can um you can use like at um, at one percent organic matter, you can hold about fifteen thousand gallons in the top uh, foot of soil. But if you increase it to every one percent, you increase it, it basically increases at another fifteen thousand ga- gallons, up to four percent. So you can go from if you raise from one percent to four percent, it's an extra forty five thousand gallons per acre per foot of topsoil. Um, and to go from one percent to four percent is not hard. Like in carbon, that's that's quite easy. There's there's guys like Gabe Brown down in uh, North Dakota. He's yeah. he's improved from less than one percent to over eight percent carbon, um, in just a, you know a, a decade. Um, so yeah, yeah, that that's that's been the the biggest kind of um, impact I think that that that's really helped everything else on our farm to thrive is is addressing that our weak link in our ecosystem was water, and once yeah. we solved that. It, like now we have trees like growing wild trees growing in our swales. We have, you know, the muskrats have come back. Um, when there, there wasn't like my dad, when he was a kid, he used to, you know, shoot muskrats and hunt them for their pelts on, on our land. And there hasn't been any on our, on our farm for, for decades. And, but the first pond that we built and once it filled, there was a muskrat in it like the next day. Isn't that wild? Uh-huh. Like where, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Yeah. It. Yeah. They just found yeah. it. That's yeah. cool. And so they, and that's the magical part of this regeneration work is that there is, there is a force in the universe that wants to create something out of nothing. You know, you can call it, you know, God or, or um, you know, ecosystems or the force or whatever you want to call it. But there's, there is a force in the universe that wants to create something out of nothing. And it has been for, for, you know, a long time. And and when you stop fighting that force and you work with it, you can speed it up. And and it's and it it's not um it's not drudgery, it's it's like vocation, it's it's productive work. It's it's one of the most fulfilling things, well, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life is to to partner with that force in the universe and and it makes my life better, makes everyone else's life better around me. Yeah, like so we that's not, that's yeah. what you do. Is yeah, that's that's what we do. Designs to assist. Yeah. making this that's yeah. that's pretty yeah. cool 
And so what's what's wild is, is it's had ramifications beyond our own property. So like, like we used to have to like schedule our showers, as I was saying. Now, like we we, we like we waste water. Like we're, we'll use three thousand gallons a day just to irrigate our our lawns and our gardens. Um, whereas like, we would never we would have never dreamt of doing that. Uh, you know, 30 years ago when I was a kid. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And, but it's, it's actually expanded onto our neighbors now where we've, um, we gave a, a farm tour a few years ago and one of our neighbors came and, uh, after the tour, they approached me and they said, so that's why our well has been getting better. Wow. That seems, that's yeah. what's amazing about permaculture yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, we're, we're, and that's that where I was saying we put 40 years of water back into the ground. That's recharging the aquifers. Um, uh, I was saying before, we didn't have standing water. So there were no wetlands, no sloughs, no creeks on our property. I've had some years where the, the, the creek that we made um, f- flowed for um, half the summer. Like it, it flowed steady, even though we don't get a lot of rain for half the summer. Now that's only happened once. It was a really good runoff year and we had, a, we had right. decent moisture, but like I guarantee it before I die, there will be a Creek that will flow year round on my property right through the winter, even. Um, I, I have no, I have no doubt about it. And, and like, and there, there wasn't even one before. That's what's cool is if you go back, you know, a hundred years before more, before it was, this land was settled, there wasn't even a Creek then. So we're going to make it better than it was, you know, before we started to degenerate it. So have you taken, when you said that they had filled in the ponds, so did you put the ponds back? You obviously put the ponds back in, so you dug those back out. And did those just kind of um, then naturally start reverting to what you have now, which is cattails and the duckweed and all that? Um, yeah, so the, the, there weren't necessarily ponds before it was just, it was like wetlands. So this would be, you know, um, there was a few spots where, where there were beavers. So the beavers will, if, if there's a foot or two of water that stays year round, they'll actually dig out, you know, a spot deep enough in the middle where, where they can build their, their dam and their lodge and, and live, you know, right through the winter. But there was nothing, you know, major, but what had been ha- happening for about a hundred years is, is that those wetlands were slowly drained. And so, you know, basically is in a dry year, what farmers do is they, they just cultivate it and then they just ditch and they, they're constantly trying to get it to run off. And if it pools up anywhere, then they'll dig that part out and it's kind of like cut and fill and, um, or they'll, you know, cut a high spot, fill it into the low spot just to get everything to run off. And by the time right. my dad bought the farm, it was like, they had done a good job. <laughs> there was, there was no water anywhere that could, could stand on our farm. So all I did is, is we went back and, you know, using topographical maps, you can see where these points in the landscape where they used to, where they did the cutting and filling. And I just closed, I just closed them off. I just kind of closed a little, built a little dam here. Um, And, uh, and so now we have, we have spots where, you know, um, a 20 foot tall dam wall or a road 
that's you know maybe a, only if uh, sorry a 20 foot long that's only like two or three feet tall backs up five acres of water okay. and there's th there's 330,000 uh, uh, gallons of water in an acre foot so it's Your huge amount. are pretty shallow then some, some of them but then I have okay. I have other dams that are in the landscape because those pond, those wetlands are more for infiltration and for growing cattails okay. as you're saying okay. but I have other ponds that are 20 feet deep Okay. And there for irrigation and, and access to water, you know, year round, because even if it freezes, it's not going to, um, the ice won't, won't take all the water away. Okay. Yeah. And did you dig those that deep? Then? The, those, yeah, those were, those were all done with, um, yeah, you know, excavators and bulldozers right. and stuff like okay. that. Yeah. Cause that's what I was wondering, like, if you don't have a natural yeah. wetland on your property, you can yes. come in and dig those and. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And then in addition to that, we built a network of, uh, they're called uh, swales or berms and basins, which basically connects all these dams and wetlands together. Um, so that say when one fills up, then it would, it would overflow into the swale, almost like an eaves trough system on your house. And then it would convey it to the next one. And when that one's filled, it conveys it to the next one. And it just, yeah. you know, now, a drop of water that were to fall on the top of our property might take three kilometers before it can leave. Right. That's uh, yeah. Cool. So we, we, yeah, we have over three kilometers of of these swales on our property, plus uh, yeah, about probably ten million gallons of of actual water storage in terms of these these dams and 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 kind of uh, uh, renovated or or uh, man made wetlands. So you have, I watched a recent video, which is available on your website, where you did an interview with uh, Curtis Stone. Yep. And you talked about the fish, the um, the fathead minnows that you're using. Do those go in the bigger ponds or are those in the shallower ponds? Like, how yeah. is all that? So they're, um, fathead minnows are um, kind of a, a bait fish that's that's ubiquitous anywhere in the world. And, um, you know, they just showed up on our, on our property, but, but now we're actually able to, um, cultivate them by creating habitat for them to, to lay their eggs. Um, and so that they, they live, they will live in the shallower water, but they'll, they'll freeze in the winter, but in our, in our, our deep ponds, absolutely. Yeah. They, they live right through the, through the winter and, um, yeah, they're super, super prolific. They, I think a single female will lay 3000 eggs in her, in her lifespan. And in, and in 90 days, those eggs will get to two inches long. Um, so almost like the size of a, like a small sardine, like in, you'd see in a can and they're delicious. Um, or the, the females, yeah, the, the females yeah. are quite good. The, the males have, um, uh, because of the hormones that they produce, they have like a, uh, a bit of a chemically taste, but the huh. females are, are just as good as, as sardines. <laughs> Um, I love sardines, honestly. So. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you can literally, you fry them up, you eat the whole thing, like bones and all they're that, yeah. they're that small. And, um, but we've, like, I, I haven't done it for a few years, but we did some experience feeding them to pigs and chickens and, um, and dehydrating them for like pet treats and stuff like that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really phenomenal. The, the pr challenges, you know, in Canada, we're not like the States in a lot of ways, where um, there's uh, it's a it's illegal to do aquaculture here with native species, so it's oh, like a okay. four hundred thousand dollar fine um, if you're caught with a 
uh, live fish more than 10 feet away from the, a body of water. Wow. Uh, okay. So it's, it's pretty, yeah, pretty tricky. If I was in the States, the aquaculture is, I think is one of the most um, undervalued and, and most abundant and most secure and like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of food production and just value that anyone, any homesteader could, could do is get into aquaculture. Um, find find whatever native species live in your in your ecosystem and learn how to create habitat for them and and build an ecosystem so it's not just one fish you're getting all the different layers and niches that they fill in the ecosystem and uh yeah wow that's i forget about um you know just the rules and the laws and how they stop us from doing some of the things that we we want it's pretty it's pretty sick yeah yeah, I forgot but the, to ask what grow zone you're in. We'd be like a, a zone. Zones? Yeah, we'd be like a zone three. I thought so. Wow, that's because yeah. I'm I'm five, and that's difficult enough. So your last freeze yeah. date must be like into June. Uh it's usually March. Or sorry, uh, May May fifteenth. Okay. okay. Yeah, so it's it's kind of September fifteenth to May fifteenth. That's kind of ours too, but then you get probably colder than we do yeah yeah that so yeah. we 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 had minus 50 here minus 50 degrees celsius but so okay. minus 40 and minus 40 are are the same for fahrenheit and celsius but we we actually that's, hit minus 50 for about a week that's cold yeah. we got i think the coldest we ever got now i'm not great at converting with celsius the coldest we got was um i think it was 2014 we got we were down like a negative 28 for a couple of weeks and we lost um, our peach yeah. trees. <laughs> so, yeah. Know. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cold. It is. So you're doing all that there, which is pretty amazing. And mm-hmm. so can you start talking about, um, I guess just your whole system and how your farm works? I, I'm familiar with it because I've been, of course, watching all of your videos, but I don't mm-hmm. know how many of the listeners are familiar with how your system is working on your farm because you are growing, you're growing food crops, but you're also integrating that in with animals and growing mm-hmm. animals and fruit trees. And yeah. So, yeah. So the, yeah, there's been, there's been a few years where the only thing we've purchased off farm has been a few machinery parts, some baler twine, some salt for our cattle and 500 gallons of diesel. And like when we produce everything else, like all of our, all of our grain, all of our hay, all of our straw, um, all of our vegetables, all of our fruit, all of our eggs, our milk, our meat, uh, we make our own cheese. And and that's really where it's, it's like my, the, the reason I do this is, is more for the homesteading side of things. Like it's, we, we want to feed ourselves first and then kind of sell the surplus afterwards. So we have a, we have a, you know, a production farm and we sell, you know, about 30 or 40 pigs a year and about uh, 15 or 20 beef and berries and eggs and stuff like that. But it's it's mostly for the, the self-sufficiency as- aspect that we, um, why we're doing this. Um, and so in terms of like, you know, all the systems, it's the, and I don't know how, if you want to go into like the specifics on certain things, but the the big the summary is like our farm is an ecosystem. Like every, every aspect of it, like the, the way that, you know the the animals and the the grasses and the the trees are are designed and laid out and managed is we're we're just trying to mimic ecosystem processes. Um, I'll also add in that we haven't used any 
fertilizer or uh, herbicides or antibiotics or any chemicals for 30 years on our farm. Um, which I think is, is yeah, the, usually that, that's something that people are taken aback by because the, it's just so ubiquitous, even in the homesteading space where, you know, you always got to have kind of the, the drugs on, on call. Right. Well, what, what I've, what I've found is that, you know, any, any weed or pest or parasite or disease is simply an indicator that something is out of balance in your ecosystem. Okay. And so you can use, you know, some of these, these, um, these drugs or, or, or chemical products to address symptoms, but it will never address the root cause. And once you address the root cause of, of whatever is causing it, it never happens again. And, you know, one of the things I've, you're not I've, even using organic chemicals no. or fertilizers you're, this is all no. a closed loop system yeah going yeah yeah so so we we used to use things like diatomaceous earth or i would use you know like herbal antiparasiticals like you know wormwood or or garlic right. or things like that um like i'll give you an example i we used to struggle with mastitis with our dairy cows which i think is quite quite common for um yeah. a lot of a lot of people um and over the course of about five years of experimentation, I've realized that that mastitis is not a bacterial infection. It's not caused by dirty straw or not using the teat dips or, you know, all the things that people say, it has nothing to do with that. What it is, is a, it's a, it's separation anxiety that the calves have, cows have with their calves. I remember hearing you say this. Yeah. yeah go on. Yeah. So other people yeah. can hear this. So the, um, and, and, at the time when I figured this out, um, I wasn't aware of it, but now I've, I've, I've discovered a new, um, there's a new system of, of, of health called Germany medicine, um, that basically follows the same idea, which is that all, all quote diseases or, or human illnesses are, um, are biologically meaningful and, and they're actually good. So the, the, the diseases are there to actually either protect us or help us heal from a particularly stressful event. And so we basically have you know, all mammals and I think plants as well, because this is where the diseases and pests come in for them. But we all have, um, we've evolved for you know, you know very long periods of time to um, to have like if, if um, like with the mastitis, for example, I was only getting it when my dairy cows were on a certain pasture. And it happened the same, whenever I moved them to that pasture, every year they got mastitis on that. And as soon as they moved them off that pasture, the mastitis went away. It took me five years to figure, figure that out, but right. through process of elimination. And eventually I realized, okay, what am I doing differently about that pasture versus any, any other one? And the difference was that pasture was across one of our main roads. And so with dairy cows, typically, uh, or the way that we do it is we lock the calves up at night okay. so that. In the morning, you know, the mothers are standing right. by their calves. You milk them before you let them out with their calves. The calves get the rest. And then all day long, right. the calves take the second milking and it, it reduces work for us and, you know, a bunch of benefits. So the difference was in this one pasture that they were on is because it was across a road, the, the cows couldn't come back to see their babies at night. Okay. That was the only difference. Every other pasture... The cows could go in in the the little shed that I kept their babies in. They could go in and touch noses with their babies, and just say, "Hey, how's how's it going? Okay, you're safe. I'll go back and graze." They were they were only uh, 
50, 60 feet away. They could literally see each other across, but there's a fence in between them and they couldn't physically touch. Oh. And that's why they were, that's where they're getting this mastitis. And as soon as I changed that design where I just made an alleyway so they could come back and see their babies, I haven't had mastitis since. I mean, it just makes so much sense, you know, as a mom that breastfed yep. her kids, the, yep. all of the hormones that take place during that physical touch, it, it makes yep. it awesome. <clears throat> yep. And so th- if you get into the German medicine theory of what mast, because it's the same in humans, is that if you have a separation conflict with your, your child, um, uh, the uh, you know y- you as a mother will want to produce more milk to help soothe your baby okay. so that when you are, when you are reunited you'll you'll be able to you know h- help to to soothe them and so when these calves and were bawling at their mothers all night long yeah. they're they're getting stressed out even though they they can literally see each other across this this pen yeah. it didn't matter and and so the mastitis it's not a disease or an illness it's actually there to help the mothers produce more milk interesting interesting um and so if you take that same analogy, and I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but like right. every, without exception, every single disease, illness, without exception, is the result of some kind of a conflict uh, or something that's out of balance in the ecosystem. Uh, and this is the same thing with with weeds, too. Um, I think I, I talked about this on the, the webinar with Curtis, but right. it's it's the um, if you if you damage uh, the same piece of ground, 10 different ways with compaction, fertilizer, fire, flood, salt, tillage, um, chemicals, you can do the same piece of ground and just do little experiments. Different weeds will grow out of, out of the different spots that you did the different damage to. Right. And so these weeds are there to help repair, uh, whatever was out of balance in the ecosystem to bring it back into the productive state that it was and, and to, and to lift it higher in the, the successional cycle. And so like really the, this, the secret to like our success is just realizing that, you know, there's been two and a half billion years of research and development that's gone on before we, we got our farm and to realize that we can learn a lot from that and stop trying to override it and fight with it and just be like, okay, something's out of balance here. It's, uh, I, I guarantee it's, 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 uh, it's me, not the ecosystem that's doing something wrong. And so how do I step back and learn from this? And that's it. Whether I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, move animals through our farm in a stress-free way or how to grow our gardens without, you know, excessive tillage, or we've got, um, you know, diseases on our fruit trees or whatever it is. That's the approach is just as, um, uh, it was a an old kind of scientist named Victor Schauberger. In his his mantra was comprehend and copy nature. It's like yeah, that's, I mean, that's what it's that's that's it. That's, that's it. Kind of what permaculture is in a very simplified nutshell is observation yep. and then learning to mimic yep. nature. Yep. But yep. assist it because I do think. I mean, I've been watching. Yes. I also been watching Ben Folk and. Yep just letting things go fallow doesn't usually work well either. And um, no, yeah, no. And, and I think that that's another, that's like the other extreme. So like in the industrial side of things, we try to like kind of command and control and, and, you know, just it's very, very top down, very militaristic in our approach, the relationship to the, to ecosystems. And then the flip side of this with a lot of kind of permaculturists or re- regen folks is just kind of this, nature is precious and, and tender and like, we don't want to hurt it. And so we just need to like pussyfoot around it. It's like, no, (laughs) 
like there have been asteroids and super volcanoes and you know glaciers that just just like destroy this planet literally back to bedrock and it keeps bouncing back better than it was before um and so we are actually an integral part of this ecosystem um and 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 if we as an organism within that ecosystem learn our proper role we can actually speed up that process yeah i mean we're seeing that so much with what like what you're doing with what Joel Salatin's doing with what yep. Ben Folk's doing. I mean, just that ability to build soil and regenerate an ecosystem yep. and turn it back into something very productive. And that's yep. one of the, I was going to ask you, do you, um, you know, you have all these systems. I'm trying not to make assumptions because in case people haven't seen the videos that you have out on YouTube and stuff, but um, do you rotationally graze? I mean, I know you've yep. oh, talked yeah. a little bit about that. Um, how does that work with all of these systems that you've got with your swales and your ponds and mm -hmm. um, some of the foods that you're feeding your animals and then the labor intensiveness? Cause you said mm -hmm. you're working less than you ever have. Mm -hmm. all? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah. So the, um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the, the kind of the broad pattern of the ecosystem first. And so anywhere you are on the planet, if you were to walk away from a piece of land and do nothing for a hundred years and just watch it, if you could speed that process up, that's, that's called succession. Um, what you would find is that ecosystems will anywhere in the world will have a, a predictable pattern that they will evolve through. And uh, the species will be different, but the pattern is always the same. It starts with pioneer organisms, which are really short-lived, aggressive. They're th typically thorny and, and just mm -hmm. tough. And it will progress into longer and longer-lived species that are more and more um, kind of um, sensitive or kind of Goldilocks in their approach to like, they need a very um, you know small range of, of windows that they can tolerate. And so the, the the pioneer organisms basically pave the way for the climax species or the climax ecosystem to evolve. And that climax ecosystem will be different anywhere in the world. Some places it's a savanna, uh, you know, ecosystem where with trees and grasses, some places it's boreal forest, some places it's jungle or, or rainforest, some places it's short grass prairie, tall grass prairie. Some places there's desert ecosystems and that's, that's all that, that's the climax is certain species of desert ecosystems. So, um, the, the, the broad approach to our farm is this kind of comprehending copy nature. So if we, if we ask that question for my property, if, if I walked away for a hundred years, what would my land turn into? It's an Aspen parkland biome, which is groves of trees interspersed with grassland. And, and you can go back in historical photos and you can see this. So it would have been like, you know, trees around the wetlands because that was the only place that they could grow and everything else would have been uh, pasture or grazing land that the, you know, the uh, bison or buffalo and and elk and, and we used to have grizzlies here. It's, they would all, you know, go in and out of the forest. 
And so that that was the original insight that led us to kind of, in addition to building these swales across our property, which are typically about like 100 or 200 meters or yards apart, okay. we just planted trees along those because that's where trees like to grow. And we fenced those off so the animals can't muck around in the water and the, the wetlands and stuff. Um, and then And then we have these grazing alleyways, which are perfect for cross fencing. So you just imagine these these kind of long narrow strips, and they're curvy because they follow the contours of the land. Right. Um, that have water lines that run along them, so it's really easy to move water tanks. So the cows always have access to fresh water without having to walk a long distance. And okay. Um, and and that's that's the broad pattern of our farm. And if you go on, you know, you can see pictures of of on my my websites. Um, right. Yeah. Or or my YouTube channel, where you can just see this pattern and you're just like, oh, of course, that's what the land wants to be there. And and we just move our our animals through these these alleyways back and forth, usually on like a thirty to sixty day rotation. Okay. And um, typically we move them once a day, sometimes more. And it takes a few minutes to move as fast as you can walk. You can put up one of these cross fences and and take one down. It's all electric now. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, every year we're seeing an increase in our productivity of our pastures, our yields. Um, increasing health in our animals. They they grow faster every year. They use less mineral. They use less supplements. Uh, the minerals, yeah. that's that part I think is awesome because you see a lot of people use a, a lot of minerals, especially um, if you're not on great soil. So you're obviously building soil and your plants are uptaking all those minerals and they're absolutely needing less. Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, you have you have um pigs. You have pigs, beef, and dairy cows, and chickens. Do you have yeah. other? Those are those are the main uh, domesticated okay. species. We've we've had a few ducks here and there, and a few horses, okay. and a few sheep. But the the main ones are yeah, pigs, chickens, beef cow, and the the pigs, chickens, and the dairy cows. They're kind of part of one ecosystem. Our beef cows um, are usually separate, uh, okay. just because they don't they don't require as much management, so they can go further away from our right. um, our inner zones. Okay. Um, but yeah, that, that's, um, those animals, like chickens, dairy, some kind of a dairy animal and pigs are like the, the holy trinity of, of, uh, kind that's of, That's what you I know, was going to ask you. So homesteading when you have, or, like a smaller scale and you can't, maybe you can't have a cow, would you substitute a goat in there? Like a milk goat or? Yeah. Goats, sheep. Um, absolutely. You can get smaller dairy animals. Like most of our like that my integrated livestock system that has those those chickens the pigs and the um typically we, we have about four to six milk cows that that we milk half of them at any one time so we're milking two to three cows at a time 30 pigs 200 chickens that all in all of our gardens and, and most of our orchards is only like 10 or 15 acres so it's it's a it's a small percentage of our farm uh, of the 250 the beef cows kind of take care of the rest but you're so, growing the grain on the rest of it, which um, we, we we aren't anymore, but we we were at, at one point. Um, now all of our land is is in um, either yeah, pasture or we do a bit of what's called swath grazing, uh, which okay. is you're you're still planting annual crops, but you're planting them later uh, so that you can swath them right before it snows okay. into these windrows, and then that the snow preserves it so that the cows can eat the swath okay. underneath the snow out in the pasture rather than being in a corral. Okay. Um, now, now, why do you say that the dairy, well, I don't know if a milk or a milk goat mm -hmm. 
is considered dairy, but a milk yeah. animal. Why do yeah. you say that that is an integral part of of this system? I know that you're, well, I'll let you answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you could live for several reasons. One is you could live off milk whether it's dairy or sheep or goat. And there's many people who have like the, and like the Maasai in Africa, who are some of the healthiest people yeah. on the planet, literally live off of milk and, and blood. Uh, and that's, that's all they eat. So it's, it's an absolute superfood. And the, it's probably the, the lowest hanging fruit in terms of, uh, I think there's like 3000 plants that a cow can eat worldwide that humans can't. Okay. Um, and if you're talking about goats and sheep, there's probably another couple thousand that right. that we can't eat. So they can literally turn, you know, un unutilable, like just wild vegetation. So it's not even like right. annual crops or just like whatever's growing naturally. They can walk out there, and in, in 24 hours, they can turn it into, you know, milk, butter, cheese, and meat and fat. Um, and, and you get huge amounts of fertilizer out of them. Like it's, it's magic. Like there's, yeah, that's what I was wondering if it had something to do with, um, not just what they provide for us as food, but as ruminants, what their stomach does to graze for the, for fertilizing ground. I mean, because they have, you know, especially cows with all Mm. their stomachs, they're not like other animals, like chickens with one stomach you know yeah 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 Yeah. so they're they they can take yeah relatively poor quality forage and basically within 24 hours turn it into you know the the you know perfect fertilizer that you can put directly onto you know any any crop um and it won't burn them and like a a cow will produce 50 pounds of fertilizer a day yeah that's crazy and then have you ever integrated any, like you were talking about all the different feeds. So I know that I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure you're aware of this, but like something like the white mulberry as a fodder tree. I mean, especially on a I'm small trying. scale. I'm tr- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how well that grows up there because you're zone yeah. three and I think they're yeah. zone five. <clears throat> yeah, we're we're right on the edge. So I've, I planted, um, I've planted honey locust in the past. Okay. Um, so uh, Gladatia tricanthus. Um for for folks who are you know, if you're trying to look up the, the latin here and then um i did some mulberries last year okay. um the honey locusts have survived they, they aren't growing very well but all i need is one um and so i'm yeah. i'm planting you know thousands of them to okay. to to try to to try to get you know one or two that will make it through and right. then i'll have those genetics and i can um i can start to work with them but absolutely okay. like trees are um another one of those kind of magical elements that just provides so much. And, and once you get it established, they, they require very little energy to keep going. Right. Um, but other species that we have that, that are working well is things like caragana or Siberian tree shrub. Uh, we, we use, uh, you know, maples, poplars. Okay. There's, so there's, there's a lot of other silver pasture or agroforestry trees that we are using to, um, okay. and you're starting, uh, you're, you are using some silver pasture there then. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've, there's a few videos that kind of show some of the grazing systems that where our dairy, particularly our dairy cows are, but even our beef cows, like all of our swales, we've, we've planted trees along them. And the goal there is to, to help, you know, provide shelter because we live in a very windy area here too. Okay. Um, 
And, you know, like there's been a lot of research that's done to show when, when, you know, your house or your animals are, have access to a shelter belt, uh, it'll, they'll use 20% less energy. So that's just what, even if they're not eating it, it can provide benefits of, of slowing the wind down. Then they're also capturing snow. Uh, they're, they're helping to, um, you know, moderate the water tables they are a lot of the trees that we plant, the pioneer ones, they fix nitrogen. So they're actually yeah. pulling nitrogen out of the air and injecting it into the ground uh, for, for free. And sometimes it'll be like tens to hundreds of pounds of nitrogen per acre per year that some so of are, these, these trees can put in. Are your, I know that you have C, I'm going to say it. I think I'm remembering it right. Sea buckthorn. Yes. Yep. You have that. Is that, is that something that you use for? Your animals or just you? Because I know that you guys, your farm actually sells a tea out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, absolutely. We we use the, um, uh, so not for our animals. Like, okay. I am I would like to get into to sheep and potentially goats for that, that reason, because okay. the, um, the, they just go so well together, particularly the sea buckthorn and buffalo berry uh, and carragana. Because in order to harvest them, you actually, the most efficient way is to cut the whole tree down. Oh, and, to, and then to does it just grow back? Coppice it. Yeah. So you kind of like a rotating so coppice. Okay. And so in that way, you you would like, you can keep the berries and the leaves for yourself, but then you can feed the the branches to your, you know, sheep or goats. Very cool. And then when they pull the, 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 you know, eat the small twigs, which they can digest or the, they pull the bark off, you're left with firewood. Um, and you like for us like a small scale um, system, those species would be just phenomenal. And um, we have played around with it. It's called tree hay, where you basically you're yeah. you're cutting cutting branches off off of certain trees at certain times of the year, and then drying them like you would hay in a in a barn or something. Um, I have done that with with certain species for our cows, but okay. they can't utilize the the branches, which is, um, okay. yeah. So that that's another system that I think just goes really well. You can create really uh, efficient systems where you know every aspect of it's being used uh, from the yeah, yeah from the, the berries to the leaves to the branches to the firewood and and at, when you prune certain trees that are nitrogen fixing, they actually release more nitrogen into the ground. So if if that's those awesome. tree rows are are positioned say next to your garden or next to your uh, food forest or fruit trees. Like the ma- the act of cutting it and harvesting it actually re- will release fertilizer into the ground, so you can really create these uh, uh, synergistic systems where you know two plus two equals way more than four. Okay, yeah, I have actually put a bunch of white mulberry and um, poplar uh-huh. and things out at my property to use uh-huh. for coppicing yep. and hay trees later. And I just got a bunch of sea buckthorn seed, so I'm hoping that um, okay. I'm able to get some of that yeah. planted. Yeah, but, the, the, they'll be, um, you know, they'll be quote invasive in your area. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, we'll, but we'll but have I, to make yeah. that work. <laughs> yeah, like in, and I, I don't bind the whole in, invasive species narrative, but it's they, they, um, they can like sucker quite aggressively, but it's fine. Yeah. It's a great. They're just. That just means that I can harvest more of them. That um, kind of gets me thinking about your whole your whole food forest thing being in rows. So one of the things I did was I planted in rows so that we could get between it with the mower, and just yep. so we can avoid that 
spread by just mowing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in your food forest that you are doing, most food forests I've seen is it's like it's literally a forest where you yes. have done yours into rows. So yep. tell me why you've decided to do the rows. Yeah. So the I I started the my first few food forests were put into um, just like random uh, anywhere that they would kind of fit in the landscape, no kind of pattern to it at all. But the, you know, the very quickly I realized it makes it really difficult to manage, very difficult to harvest, very difficult for, um, and I would, I would even say it, it, it's not good for pollination. So oh, like if you go okay. out into a, you know, an ecosystem and you find a wild patch of blueberries or a wild patch of strawberries or ra raspberries, or they tend to be in clumps yeah. where there's, it's, it's a lot of the same species all in one area. Um, and then, and then something else in a big clump. So kind of for all those, those reasons, and it also fits really well within our water management system because, you know, all of our, all of our swales are on contour uh, or kind of, you know, in curvy lines. And so our food forests then are just basically parallel to those. And that, that makes it easier for fencing, for mowing. If you're going to use, you know, chicken tractors or or, you know, anything that's having things in rows, there's just so many benefits to it. And um, yeah, it's, it's in a lot of the early books that I read, there was just no, there's no discussion around like efficiency or design, um, which yeah, in my that mind is. becomes an issue when you're. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why people get out of homesteading. Like they fall in love yeah. with it, they get into it and then the workload just becomes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's drudgery. Yeah. 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 So the, that's another, you know, aspect of, of uh, permaculture, which is really interesting is, um, so the, you know, any element will have its own, its needs and yields. So things that it provides to the system and things that it needs, uh, um, so it yields to the system and it, and it needs from the system. Uh, now, if you, if you as a designer, if your system or if an element needs something that it can't get itself from the system, it will result in work. And if it provides something to the system that you can't put to productive use, it, it results in pollution. So if you don't design your systems properly, they will they will suck and they will eventually destroy the, you know, wh wh wherever uh, area they're around. And, and you can take of... A simple example, this is like a chicken coop, which is if you don't design the chicken coop so that it can be cleaned really easily, it will result in work for you and pollution yes. for the chickens. And then you need medicated feed and, you know, the chickens get sick and they don't lose as much production. And 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 then the cascading effects of that are, you know, your gardens are um, don't have the nutrients that they need. So now you need to bring in, you know, fertilizer from outside and it just ripples out. So it's right. it's really important, like like crucially important for people to think about the efficiency of these systems so that as much as possible, your food forest can facilitate all of its own needs from the system, just just without doing anything. So just by virtue of how it's designed, it takes care of itself. Um, and then also its its yields are also used by the system. And then whatever you have, whatever 
work you have to do for the system has to be really, really uh, efficient and dialed in. And and I have no problem using technology. Like I, I we use tractors. Um, I do I do use a lot of hand tools, but there is for every horsepower motor that you have on your property, it's the equivalent of ten uh, basically Olympic level uh, workers that at your disposal. Right. So like one yep. one horsepower is is ten human beings. So even like a small garden tractor is like hundreds of 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 people in a, in a workforce that you can mobilize at you know your beck and call to to do things. Now a lot of equipment and technology is used just wastefully and and just to no end. Um but yeah that that, that that's like design and the proper use of technology is is an absolute must and I think a lot of homesteaders fail to do that and that's why it sucks and they get burnt out and and they leave. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think the workload and and a lot of homesteaders are working a job on top of coming yeah. home studying. Exactly. Speaking yeah. of that, you're probably, are, are you doing carpentry work now or are you still, you see your husband no, on the farm? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for years, um, what was it? Like I, yeah, until, until like 2014, uh, both my parents and I were, uh, worked off farm. Okay. And, and they, and they, my parents worked off farm, my whole childhood, the farm, the farm basically never made money. And now, uh, you know, this, this last year, the, um, you know, we, we grossed half a million dollars in sales on 250 acres. Um, wow. I mean, with, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. That, that, that's basically like our, that's, yeah, that's very good. I mean, from, from, and that's like the full-time work for, um, there's a full-time salary for three people. And I'm, awesome. I, I'm part-time on the farm now because I, I may mostly do the marketing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Um, and kind of the, the business admin, I've got my own property now, but like that, yeah, that's, that's phenomenal compared to what we, nice. <laughs> we, we lost yeah. money every year for, yeah, for decades. Yeah, that's huge. So. I mean, there's so many farms out there that are not making money or they're just, um, it's a wash. Yeah. They're just not profitable. Yeah. So to even get profitable and then supply income for three people is in yeah. in how many years that sounds like like what 20 yeah so that, that was no that that was 2014 is well 2012 is when i came years yeah i came back but like i could have done it in five or less if knowing what i know now like it's yeah, i made yeah i basically made mistakes for for five or six years and and wasted a bunch of money um but yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely, right. yeah, that was my, I didn't go to university or anything. So that was my tuition. <laughs> yeah. That's the price of, that's the price of learning. I think, yeah. um, I think sometimes we look at mistakes as a bad thing and they're actually a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That, that's one of my models now is yeah. Just, I want to make mistakes as, as fast as possible. <laughs> right. And learn from them. Yeah, and, and, and learn and learn from a move on. Yeah. So what do you do in the winter? Are you, you did say that you do grow some grains. So how are you feeding all of these animals in the winter up there? Yeah. So the, our, our, our 
beef herd is is 100% uh, grass fed and finished. Um, so so you know we we still produce um, most of our own hay on on farm. This year we bought probably about 50% of the. We had a really bad drought this year, yeah. and and we're also trying to rehabilitate rehabilitate or regenerate our pastures. So uh, like the for most people the cost of hay for whatever you're paying for it is actually you're getting the hay for free and you're buying fertilizer. Um, so, you know, we, we, we found the same guy that grows my, uh, organic grain, uh, also grows, um, uh, organic alfalfa and, and forages and stuff. So we bought some, some hay off of him. The, um, and then for our, our pigs and chickens, they, we do feed grain to them, but we ferment it which I think makes a, right. a big difference. And we're not using soy, corn, canola, or any other kind of rancid byproducts of, an, of the industrial food system. It's, it's it's like chickens were were evolved to eat seeds. They have a gizzard. Okay. And so th- there's nothing wrong with feeding chickens certain kinds of grain. It's it, The problem is, is how those grains are grown, how they're okay. processed, and... Um, and kind of, you know, what's, what's been put on them. And if, and if they're getting, getting too much, uh, and same thing with, with pigs, I have no problem feeding grain to pigs, but just like humans, I think it should be fermented okay. to, to help reduce any of the anti-nutrients and make it more bioavailable for them. And so you that, are using, that's where some of this milk comes in. So you're using some of your cow's milk for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we typically get around, you know, four to five gallons of milk a day. And for the most part, that's the, there's either four to five gallons of skim milk after we take the cream off or four to five gallons of whey after we make cheese. Okay. Um, there's some days where we take all the milk and, and that's we drink that and it, it doesn't go back. But like for the most part, we have too much milk for our 30 pigs and okay. and, you know, 200 chickens just from a few dairy cows. So okay. we, we ferment their grain in skim milk or whey which uh, helps provide essential amino acids and, and enzymes. Yeah. It also has. Bioavailability. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it provides the nutrients in itself, but the, yeah, the fermentation process, just for the same reason, humans benefit from eating sourdough pigs are the same way and, and chickens are the same way too. Okay. Yeah. Are you growing? So you said you're doing soy. Did you say soy, corn, and wheat free feed for your chickens? Uh, soy, soy, corn, and canola. So the, our, our feed is basically um, wheat, peas, barley, oats is the the grain mix. We're okay. we're uh, we're starting to this year. I'm gonna the the guy that's growing my grain. He's growing all those species together, and we're gonna add in things like flax, hemp, sunflowers, okay. all nice. in one polyculture grain. So he's harvesting that's it with awesome. one one combine. Um, it's literally like a food forest that we're planting as an, as an annual grain crop. Cause they've got the emergence, the highs, the mediums and the lows all in one ecosystem in a grain field. And, um, so yeah, all that's in the, the grain. And then we grind that, uh, on, on farm and we, we okay. feed that to animals. We also sell feed, um, off farm as well, because it's, it's really difficult to get yes. the good quality, feed that isn't filled with GMOs or, uh, or chemicals, or it's rancid. The, um, and I think in the States, it was worse. Like a few years, it was a year ago. There was like the the problem. Everyone's chickens stopped laying. Yeah. Yep. And I can't remember what, what it was, but there there was something they were putting in the feed, wasn't it? 
there was like a, a new... I can't remember either. It was something to do with the feed, but I also think some of it was um, the protein content had gone down okay. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And so like this is where this industrial food system has just gotten so sick where all it does is it looks at these macronutrients and it doesn't care, you know, where the protein's coming from as long as there's protein. Right. But it fails. Well, they're using sesame seed oil, which is high protein, but it's rancid because it yes. was pressed on one side of the country and then shipped all the way across. And then they, they bleach it to try to get the rancid. Yeah, forget the chemicals they use to even process. Grow, the yeah. Oil. Yeah. So, so for most people like that's, that's what they're getting for, for, for okay. their, their feed for their animals if they're buying it in the store. So it's, it's already rancid. Um, and it has all these additives and things that are put in that they don't need. Um, so yeah, we, we've grown our own grain and, and made our own feed for, for decades because we didn't want to deal with that. And now we've gotten to the point where we're producing enough that we're providing about a hundred other homesteaders in our area and, awesome. and small farms all their feed for their animals too. And, and, and it's cheaper than the, in, like the, like it's, it's beyond organic. It's fresh, all these things. And it's cheaper than what they're paying for those 50 pound bags of feed when they go to the, the hardware store. So what is the protein? I mean, are you getting chickens that require less protein? Are you somehow breeding them that way? The, or what is your protein? Kind? Yeah. Where are you getting so the, the protein source? The, the, the peas, the peas and the okay. wheat, um, have enough. So the, like that base ration is about 15 to 16% protein. And with that, and if the chickens are foraging, that's all the protein that they need to, well, to way. yeah. And, and, and the way, but even I have some customers who don't, don't feed the way, don't feed the milk. Okay. They're just giving our grain, but that's, that would be like a layer ration for our grower and uh, chick starter. We add in uh, a certified organic wild caught herring meal that's oh. really high protein. So it's actually an animal uh, or a fish protein. So you're and, not using your fathead minnows uh, yet. I, I mean, the, we, we are, but it's it's at a small small scale that we haven't developed it enough. Okay. Um, but absolutely could be. We also use duckweed right. is another thing that we use to supplement our protein, which duckweed's 40% protein. We feed that to our pigs and, and chickens. Um, if So if we were on like a, like a homestead scale and it was just for ourselves... Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We could provide all the protein needs. We wouldn't need to buy fish meal in from, you know, the, the East coast. Uh, right. But because okay. we're, Bigger you know, scale. we're, yeah. we're, we're larger scale and we're, we're growing feed for all these other farms. We just can't, can't produce it enough. Right. However, my hope is that by adding the, the feed with the, the sun, sunflower, the hemp and the flax, that will boost the protein even higher. And I don't, I, I may not need these, these fish meals anymore. That hemp adds in your omegas too. Yeah. Same, same with the, same with the sunflowers and, right. and the flax and um, like hemp, I think is like 30 or 30% protein peas are, are about 20 or 30% protein. Right. But the problem is like, I, I can't put enough peas in to the ration because peas have their own um, anti-nutrients that are, right. are tricky to deal yes. with too. So yeah, I'm, I'm going with a diversity diversity rather than just kind of focusing on the the macros. And I, I guarantee like if, if I gave my feed ration to a, a nutritionist, they would say, well, an animal, this won't work for an animal. Well, we've been doing it for, for 30 years and I've got a hundred customers that have done, some of them have done side-by-side -side trials where they're feeding, you know, a, a nutritionist balanced ration in the same chicken or in a chicken tractor right next to it. And, and ours does, they do better on our feed, you so know, right, you... right next to it. 
so with that, they're growing it. If they're going to grow it all in one field, mm -hmm. is that all going to ripen at the same time? Are you feeding some of this green? And how did you find a farmer that was willing to go and do this wild <laughs> experiment? <laughs> um, so we we, we were the, we were we were our own guinea pigs first. Okay. Um, so I've, I think I've got a few presentations where I've talked about the um, kind of our multi-species grain mix that we did, which was barley, peas, oats, wheat, and then a whole bunch of different cover crops. So like turnips and radishes and clovers okay. and uh, in the, in the understory. Um, and th there's, there's enough guys around the world that are doing this now. That's not so crazy. Like even on a commercial scale, they're doing, it's called intercropping where they'll grow say like wheat and lentils together in the same right. field. And they'll combine or uh, oats and, and peas is another really common thing that even like massive, you know, 10,000 acre farms are doing in, in particularly in organics. So it, like t 15 years ago, there's no way any I could have convinced anybody to do this. But now that you know we've done it, and and there's enough other guys that have experimented with it, um, I had to hunt around a bit. But once I found the guy, I basically showed him the the spreadsheet where it's like you're gonna get here's all the things you're gonna get out of this. I can pay this much per ton for your for whatever grain you can provide. I'll take as much as you can grow, and it's just you know the it was money talks kind of a thing because. Right. Um, because in addition to the grain that he's growing, he's getting the straw that he would harvest. If you just plant wheat or oats or barley, the straw has basically no feed value for for cows. Okay. But if you if you add in peas and sunflowers and radishes and turnips and all these other things, now that straw is just as valuable as hay. Which like the, the difference between a bale of straw and a bale of hay is like you know, almost ten, five to 10 X the value. So, so the, this guy who, who grew my, my grain for me, and I told him, cause we've done this before on our own farm um, and our animals love it. And there's ways you can feed it so that you're mixing in hay that it, you know, the, the you're not going to have issues with, with um, you know, uh, malnutrition or anything, but the, the value of, by doing it, these multi-species together, the value of the forage that he gets off of the crop for his cows is almost more than the value of the grain itself. That's awesome. Well, and then um, on top of it, he's getting the diversity of, in his soil yeah. of growing. Yeah, so it's, the, exactly, exactly. It's yeah. it's actually like a cover crop. So right. he's, he's he's basically growing grain, a cover crop to build his soils, and he's getting forage. And the, the you can, if you put certain species in, you'll get regrowth in the springtime. So you you can get an additional grazing off of the, the 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 spring regrowth before you plant the next year's crop. Yeah, see, this is just how farming should be. Like this exactly, is how, yeah. like the community is operating. You guys are both benefiting from this. The soil is benefiting from this. The animals are benefiting from yep. this. It's just like the perfect yeah situation. Yeah, yeah. This this is synergy. This is two plus two equals sixteen. Yeah. And um and what's so cool they, is like we're go ahead. So they are getting, so some of this is probably green then, right? Like the grain is not completely, or it no, it's, it's all, it's all dried down. So like, okay. Okay. There's, um, there, you have to play around with them, like the variety selection for, for what, cause there's different maturity dates for, okay. for certain grain, but, but what's, what's interesting about it is, is, uh, and this is again, one of the aspects of synergy. If you plant just a pea crop by itself, it's really hard to harvest it by itself because, right. because of the way peas grow, they like, they lay flat on the ground. And so guys, when they're going to do a pea crop, they literally have to roll or compact their fields with like giant compaction 
like like uh, steel drums filled with concrete to flatten oh, any field, any 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 rocks before they plant it because when they harvest it with their combines their headers are so low to the ground that any little rock the combine will pick it up and it'll wreck a million dollar combine okay. versus with this way when you're planting things like wheat and oats and barley that grow really tall the peas have a trellis that they can climb up that is amazing um, and but but in addition to that certain things like peas they're they are difficult to to ripen and you almost have to harvest them before they're ripe, because if they are ripe, they shell out so easily. Versus versus with this system, you can harvest them. The peas won't necessarily be ripe, but because the barley and the oats and stuff will be more than ripe, it kind of when you put it into a bin, it evens out. You okay. know, this is the same the same way. Like if you are, you know, if you're if you drop your phone in in water, you put it into a bowl of rice. Right, right? It, it, yeah. it'll pull the, it'll pull the moisture out of it. So that that's basically what happens with these these intercrops. As long as you don't get too much of the things that wouldn't necessarily be ripe, um, the stuff that is ripe will be will be kind of drier than it should be, and it'll it'll kind of balance out in the bin. And that's and worst case scenario, you could put it through a, a dryer if you had to, but um, right that. That uses yeah. a lot of energy, though. Yeah. yeah, and and like you know, this year we did um, it was it was a wet fall. And we we had uh, sunflowers, wheat, barley, oats, and peas all together in one crop, and it was like well below the the you know critical moisture threshold. Okay. Um, for so that's for, what you're doing in the winter. Are you doing that year round? For for feed. Yeah. Or, yeah. No, we we feed you're grain doing that with pigs and chickens. Yeah, yeah. But the with my pigs, the and chickens, we we limit feed them. So we only feed them say you know once or twice a day. And then they go forage for their third meal. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I would still say, you know, the, the majority of the, or not the majority, probably a quarter of their diet is coming from the forage that they're getting themselves. Right. But we just, we wouldn't get the production if we weren't feeding the grain. Um, right. And it okay. would take, take a lot uh, longer to. to yeah. Cause I mean, like pigs are one of the animals that it's okay for them to get grain. Unlike a cow, it's not. No, yeah. yeah 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 and and like i do give a little bit of grain to my dairy cows but just as yeah. a treat like they get a few pounds a day versus like in the in the dairy barns they they basically That's force they... feed them grain and they'll give them you know 10 12 pounds of grain a day which then the milk yeah. becomes you know it's it's not as healthy because it's it's inflammatory because they're not designed to to eat that as well so if you were doing this like on a smaller scale i was thinking about that with the grains mm-hmm you could probably, I don't know if you would, if you could find a farmer, maybe a bunch of my friends and I can advocate a farmer to grow like you have, but yep. um, you're doing like the forage that you're doing with your pigs. They're actually going out and doing that themselves. You're not bringing it to them. I, I mean, I've seen your videos. They're, they're going out and getting like the cattails. Yep. And yeah. do you do anything yeah. else with the pigs besides cattails? Do you like plant radish or any of that? Um, we, we have done some stuff where the, like say that swath grazing mix that we talked about earlier, where it's a, you're, you're planting basically the same, like, you know, barley, peas, wheat, oats, sunflowers, yeah. turnips, all that stuff. You just plant a little bit later. And then, so it won't start to dry off in the fall. It's actually still green. And then you cut it green, put it into swaths. Um, we've, we have grazed our dairy cows and our pigs 
in a system like that together where the pigs will okay. go and root up the turnips and the, nice. the beets and the radishes, and they'll eat some of the, the forage itself. But what's cool is with that, the, the pigs will also eat any of the grain heads that make it through the stomachs of the cow will get concentrated in their, in their manure. And, and I've, I've, I've got videos on my website or on the, on my YouTube channel where like, I'll, uh, I'll open up a cow pie and it looks yeah. like a barley sandwich. Like it's, it's like yeah, half saw it. yeah. barley and the pigs will literally eat like a whole pile. Yeah. They the think that's amazing, too. right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic for them. Like, so th- there's, there's a lot of things that, um, that we, that we could do. And, and this is the the place that I'm, uh, I'm in right now is like, we've, I've, I've kind of done proof of concept on a lot of these little systems and my, uh, my niche in my ecosystem is like, I'm an, I'm an inventor. So once I like, I do something and it, like it works, like, I don't want to like scale it and like figure, I just want to go to the next thing and invent the next thing. Um, but the, I have no doubt that you could, you could feed cows. I know guys that are feeding pigs on silage. They're not feeding any grain at all. And they're, they're oh, just, wow. just with forage and, and silage because the silage is broken down enough. Um, so absolutely. There are, there are systems that you could, you could develop like this. And if you had, if you were to make like a spreadsheet of all the different forage resources, the cattails, the mulberries, you know, the, the honey locusts, when they drop the, yeah, when the turnips are ready. And if you, if you made a spreadsheet of like when all those things were ready and just filled in the gaps with, okay, well, we need something in May. Um, cause that's a really hard. So what are we going to feed them in May? Well, we could do squash. Absolutely. You could, you that's could do an it. And there's, idea. there's yeah. guys that are doing this with chickens that are grain free. Um, so hundred percent it, 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 it can be done. Um, the, I guess I'm the, yeah, because we are kind of going the, like the, the farm scale route and like, like, uh, yeah. one pig uses about like 2000 pounds of feed to get to full, like of grain to get full size. And I'm raising, you know, 30 or 40 for sale off farm. So the, the, the scale kind of starts to break down where I, they wouldn't be able to get that much forage in the distance they could walk from my, my hub. Um, but so I found it better to be kind of the 80, 20, where it's like, I'm just trying to reduce the amount of feed that they're eating with the, the cattails, still giving them grain. Right. And, um, but yeah, on a home, on a home scale side of things, you could totally raise a pig and chickens without purchasing any feed from off farm. Right. But it, it takes a while to develop these systems. And, and I would also add in, like, there's nothing wrong with the, like, if you buy in grain, to feed for your chickens or pigs, you're basically, again, you're buying the fertilizer and getting the grain for free. The, yeah, the, yeah. I think I like the idea of, of a mix of that, like um, yeah. still using the grain, but then adding to that. I think that yeah. just creates a, a sound system. I mean, if something yeah. happens. Exactly. It's totally, it's, and, and I, you know, I'm at the stage where, you know, it's, I'm a, you know, prepare for the the worst and hope, hope for the best kind of a thing. And so, you know, we're, we're set. And if we have to go back to a home scale production, I know I could raise pigs just with, with, with dairy cows. Um, like the dairy cows would provide enough of the, the protein fats for the, for our chickens and, and pigs to, to make it through. Um, the, and, and all the other forage resources that we have, but like, I also think, you know, the, the ideal system can solve some of these kind of political and, and social problems that we're facing. The, the most 
the optimal civilization isn't where everyone's homesteading. Um, like I, I, yeah. I, I do think it makes sense to have specialized farmers at a certain scale that that makes sense for the ecosystem, because once you've got that division of labor, then other people can focus on you know building the the technology and and yeah, you know, we need all your the... creative brain working on creativity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but not not even not even mine. Like there's people like you know we're talking to each other across you know thousands of miles yeah. with this amazing technology, and that wouldn't happen unless there was a surplus of food, and someone could spend you know their whole life working on elect have nothing to do with agriculture. So yeah. th that's kind of where I'm at. Where it's like like agriculture is the foundation of civilization. Um, that the homesteading for me is that it's it's a it's an insurance policy. I hope we never have to use it. Um, but it it gives me the the freedom and peace of mind to kind of, you know, bite the hand that that feeds me and know that right. <laughs> yeah. know that I can I can call the system out and and not worry they're going to cut me off my food ration tickets. Um but but yeah, long term, I guess asking answering your question around like could you could you grow all of your own feed and be like a self-sufficient farm? Absolutely. But I don't think that's the best thing. I think it's better right. to, like you said, find a local farm who can specialize in that, who already has the equipment and help them transition so that they're growing this kind of regenerative grain. And because that will free up, you know, everyone in your community to then focus on what they're passionate really, really good at. You can right. still have a few chickens in your backyard, but yeah. the effort to to try to get a system where you don't need any grain or any feed for your, your pigs it's hard. It, you can do it, but like, that's your full-time thing. Yeah. And I think it's, and it's becoming more and more unusual for people to have, like your family has been obviously homesteading this piece of land for a long time. It's becoming more and more <clears throat> unusual for people to have large swaths of land. Where yeah. I live at in Michigan, which is Northern Michigan, like way Northern Michigan, um, we don't have massive farms that have, when I say massive, I'm yeah. talking 200 acres is really unusual. Yeah. Out out west, thousands and thousands of acres yeah. is is not unusual, but here it's really unusual for people to even have 100 acres. So to yeah. find that farmer here that does have a couple hundred acres and that equipment, uh, to me, it feels just the obvious yeah. thing to do. And then it also builds that community resilience. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's been so cool because like all of my customers are homesteaders, and you know they're they're all working off farm jobs and yeah, and but, but they want to have this 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 piece and like just the they're so grateful that that we've been able to to kind of solve this this piece of the puzzle because in our I don't know, probably not the same in your areas but you can't buy feed now in our area unless you have what's known as a premise ID number which is basically a, a, a certificate from the government where you have to tell them how many animals you have where they're located and oh, all these, other, you, you can't, you can't buy feed. You can't buy dog food. You can't buy, you can't buy utter bomb, like salve for your cow's teats. So they're, they're, they're slowly wow. starting to, to close the noose around us. Now, how, um, how is that a new thing? I did not realize well, they, that they, they've had it. They've had bad. it for, they've had it for years, like this premise ID number, but it started out where I was like, well, it's just for certain things. And and then now it's like you you literally can't go into a hardware store and buy anything animal related, like for, for food or for food or medicine, 
without one of these premise ID numbers. So who issues that? Is it like a veteran? The government. The government? No, the, oh, the, it's, it's a government application that you have to tell them. Wow. Yeah, you're, I know you're here just recently they have taken a lot of medication. Well, I shouldn't say I know exactly what medications they are because we don't use them, yeah. but yeah. they've taken medications out of some of the ag stores and you now have to go to the veterinarian to get them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like that slow road. Yeah. That, that is crazy. So when <clears throat> somebody buys through you, obviously, are, are they yeah, I, I, there's no, there's no, there's yeah. no paperwork here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. Wow. I, just blows my mind that you just yeah, and it's it's gonna get worse like we they're you know if you listen to the the folks that are that are you know planning these agendas they're openly saying they're gonna make animal agriculture illegal um yeah you know, all because supposedly animal agriculture is bad for the environment for, which yeah which is, we, just you have nonsense. shown you have shown that the way you're doing things is actually better for the environment because you've brought water back yeah, well, the the water and the like. One of my one of my goals is that I want to have a new bird that I don't recognize come through my farm every year, and every year for ten years that's been the case. I have to get the bird book out. What's that guy? So like okay. we're we're increasing biodiversity every year. There's new plant species that I've never seen before. We're yeah improving soil health, all these different things. Well, yeah, and you brought uh, back muskrats that came from yeah. who knows where, and you got yeah. fathead minnows that you don't know where they came from, and and yet. <laughs> This is supposedly bad for the environment. It just blows my mind that. Yeah, and and there's like there's the latest. These one are from people the that are so removed from actually being on a on a good quality yeah. farmer homestead that they don't yeah. even understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and the latest the latest report I saw was um, I think it was from the World Economic Forum, which was how like small scale kind of homesteading, backyard gardens type agriculture yes, was more. That was was more b bad for the environment than industrial agriculture which is I kind of take that as a compliment. Uh, yeah, like, I, I do. So many people are gardening now <laughs> that we have reached it's, their it's yeah. we have reached their to-do list that they're trying yeah. to make us look bad. So I mean that's kind yeah. of a compliment to me. <laughs> I I I agree. And uh and I I don't you know what as I'm talking about this I don't want to I'm not worried about this stuff either. To me right. I I think it's they the only power they have is that which we give them. Right. I don't think they're going to come out with the with the military and and they're going to do it all by voluntary. You're, they're going to they're going to like the mandates. You know, the last few years. It, now they're well. It wasn't it wasn't forced. It was it was all free choice. So just remember that all the stuff it's voluntary. They're they're making us offers. We can say politely say no thanks. And they can, they might make it hard for us or try to use other businesses to enforce their policies. But if we just step back and say, sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to grow feed for my, my family, my community. And then the feed industry is regulated. Like it's illegal for me to do what I'm doing to, 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 to grow grain because I'm, I'm, I'm calling it feed. And if they ever get, you know, catch me on it, I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll change the name to dog food or what to something else right. that isn't regulated. Um, yeah, I mean, we have we have some of that here with like, for example, the raw milk. Uh, a lot of people yeah, same, sell milk same, for yeah. it's for animals. It's for, you know, it's yeah. animal feed, you know. But uh, yeah, that just that still blows my mind that you have to ask permission to even have like a dog and get dog food and chickens and get. I mean, in some places you do have to ask permission here to get. Well, you don't have to ask permission, but your amount of chickens are limited, especially in urban and suburban areas. But we don't have to ask permission to go by feed. That just kind of, 
I didn't yeah. and, realize that. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a new, that's a new thing that like just came up just in the last few years. Um, and wow. it's, it's been wild to see the, the, how like our, our local governments are working kind of in lockstep with these, these, you know, globalist organizations where, you know, like our local counties are putting out webinars now for farmers about what, you know, how to prepare for animal pandemics. Yeah. The, the whole bird flu thing has been yeah. definitely the last few years more on the radar. Yeah. So that, I yeah. think that's, that's where it's going. And, and I think that, yeah, the best way for us to, to stay away from that is just, you know, fly under the radar, start developing our own local uh, communities yeah. and yeah, kind of I build agree. the revolution, build the revolution one homestead at a time. I agree. On that note, I wanted to ask you, what is your, you know, what's, what are things looking like in the future? You have your website, uh-huh. um, which is, I'm trying to remember, build your, buildyourhomestead.com. Uh, b- building are, your homestead. Buildingyourhomestead.com. And yeah. I will put links in the show notes on the website. But um, what are your future plans? You're, you said that you're more working with marketing and the creative uh-huh. side of things now. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, I, I'm still... I still manage the the farm with my folks. I bought my own 30 acre property that is kind of be my okay. going to be my own research laboratory. I've got a lot of, you know, new um, you know, forage systems that I want to play around with things with like with insects and like I don't want to eat the bugs, but my chickens would love to eat bugs. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like some uh what do they call it? Roaches and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like stuff like that. And uh, I've got some new versions of my, you know, duckweed system. And okay. um, so, yeah, I'm going to continue doing that, that R and D side of things on the, you know, on our farm and our, and my homestead. But w- now that those systems are working really well, and I've got a, a farm hand that's kind of managing a lot of that stuff for me, okay. it's, it's freeing me up to, to be able to uh, work more one-on-one with, with other homesteaders who want to do the same thing. So and, you're doing some consulting then? Uh, consulting and, and design. Well, one of the things okay. that, that I've realized is that, you know, in the same way that most people wouldn't find it difficult to design their own house, like if they're going to build a, a brand new house from scratch, they'd probably work with some kind of a, a home builder or, right. a, or an architect. And, and these are like, houses aren't complex. There's like four or five kinds of rooms. There's bedrooms, there's bathrooms, there's a kitchen, there's a living room, and there's hallways. Like that's like, right. but we got to yeah. figure out how do we, how do we arrange that, you know, in a, in a few thousand square feet so that it's efficient and beautiful and allows, lo- there's a lot of elements that, and most people can't get throughout their head around that. And I think one of the, 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 um, problems that I've seen in the, the permaculture and kind of, uh, regenerative egg space is that, um, all of the education and courses is trying to get people to do this for themselves. And so it'd be okay. akin to like, I want to build my own house. I'm going to go take a four-year program and to be an architect. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make, right. it, does, it doesn't make sense now. So what, where, what I want to do is I've spent the last 10 years basically becoming an architect for, for farm design. I've made tons of mistakes on, on our own place. I've had the opportunity to, to work with other clients to help design their properties out. I've tried to teach other people and it's, you can do it, but it takes four years. So yeah. this is another example of the division of labor is like, it's better for certain people to specialize in homestead design or farm design and let other people specialize in the management of those systems. So, you know, I've got a great team that I work with now where we're all homesteaders ourselves. Uh, we've got a landscape architect 
a, a literal landscape architect who can, you know, take my crayon drawings for, you know, how to, how farms should look and turn them into actual, like really functional, um, drawings, um, for anywhere from a few acres to, you know, the largest property I've worked on is, was a 30,000 acre ranch. Wow. And, um, and, and, and thinking about how to mimic these ecosystems and, and manage water flows and, and, you know, um, access and where buildings should be located and all these different things to, to build these, these interconnections and these synergistic relationships between elements so that the properties will be efficient long-term. And if you can get the right you know, the right thing and the right, uh, the right amount of the right thing at the right time in the right place, the rest of the stuff's easy. Right. Um, so th that's kind of where we're at right now is we want to help homesteaders, anywhere in the world or farmers to design and develop their land. Okay. So we can, we can, you know, we can design it for them. We can design it with them or, um, th they can design it themselves. Like I've got a book, I've got courses on how to design this stuff. So we can kind of meet people wherever they're at and provide whatever level of support they need, whether it's just you know, an hour of consulting here and there, or a full-on, you know, homestead design package where we work with you for a base, like a month or sorry, two months straight to, you know, diagnose, clarify your goals, diagnose your whole property, come up with a design, come up with an implementation okay. strategy, and then a long-term monitoring approach for you to make sure that you're on the right track and kind of anywhere in between there. Yeah, I think, and that's all you can, people can find all of that on your website. Yeah. Yeah. Buildingyourhomestead.com has, and there's, there's also free resources on there. There's, there's links to my book and I've got I a podcast. about your book. Your, what was yeah. the title of your book? Uh, so it, it was called Building Your Permaculture Property. Okay. That's um, right. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah and, and that was a, a five-step process to design and develop land, but, uh, and it's, it's, you know, a great book. And, and that's the process that I use to design and develop land. But I just started to realize that for, for a lot of people, like some people want to become an architect yes. and, and if that that's the book you should read, if you want to be a homesteader and just farm and and just fo or or keep your your off farm job or whatever it is and also homestead, then I think it makes sense to. And there's lots of other great designers. You mentioned Ben Falk. There's yeah. guys like Mark Shepard. There's um, um, yeah. There's there's lots of of kind of right, farmer yeah. homestead design companies out there. Probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on is that I I even though I wanted to become an architect is I didn't lean on the the professionals that were already there enough. Um, and it would have saved me a ton of time and, and tens of thousands of dollars. Okay. Um, if I would have done that earlier. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we close the podcast? Um, and I'll just close it with, with one of my like favorite quotes from, from Bill Mollison, who's the founder of uh, permaculture. And he said, because this is really my my impetus for why I got into uh, you know farming and and homesteading and, and permaculture. He said the you know the 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 central problem is that you know the with all, the central problem with all revolutions is that they're utterly dependent upon the the systems they're trying to overthrow, and that they they produce more um, bullets and and words than than they do food and shelter. So he he said the 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 most important thing that we need to do is is to is to transition from consumers to producers, and that's why I just I love the the homesteading ethos. That's why we changed the name of our, you know, the the company to focus on homesteading is because it's okay. there's really this this desire to for production and to you know exit the current system. We don't want to we don't want to fight. We don't want to you know words and bullets. 
screw all that. It's it's not going to work. We just want to withdraw um, and and take responsibility for our own families and our communities and scale up from there. And I just I I love that that um, like that vision goal. that vision that Bill put forward, um, which he also summarized as you know per- permaculture is is a revolution disguised as gardening. Yeah, and yeah. and so I I I think a lot of people like that's what draws them to it, whether it's conscious or not. I don't know, but for me, it, it always was, and I'm, I'm really trying to push that more. Is that everyone? We whatever problem you see in the world, like the best way to solve it is is gardening or homesteading. I feel like that. Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like that for me. I mean, it's I of course yeah. I love it, and that's my passion. So yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dakota. Um, as I told you. Before I maybe even said at the beginning, but I have enjoyed watching you over the last several years and you're putting out a little more content now. And I've just really enjoyed what you're doing. And um, thank you for your contribution to permaculture and the movement. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks.